Hello, welcome to the third Product Owner Podcast. Um, again, with video, we're hoping to bring more of these videos to you. But if you're listening, then uh, we'll also do our best to um, talk in a way that you don't need the video. I don't think that will be a problem, Dave. Um, but we'll see where we get. As you might notice, uh, next to me is Dave West, um, product owner for Scrum.org. Uh, I'm very excited to have you here. It's very nice. Currently, uh, there's a face-to-face of Scrum.org here at the ProWareness headquarters, which meant this was possible. Uh, and I'm very grateful that you could uh, put aside some time from your busy schedule here uh, to, uh, to talk to us about product ownership. Um, so I'd like to start off, and I think you can explain better yourself than I can. Uh, who is Dave West? Who is Dave West? Well, thanks, thanks for inviting me. Product owner is perhaps the most important role, in my opinion, in any Scrum team. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'm biased because I'm a product owner, but uh, you know, ultimately, you know, that the person that builds decides what to build. The decision about that is, it doesn't matter how good you are at building software, if you build the wrong stuff, it's still the wrong stuff, isn't it? So or any product that you create. So product ownership is very important and also a much misunderstood role, I think, in an organization. So how did I get to be a product owner? So this is actually my second time of being a product owner, or maybe third time, depending on if you measure. So I came through the classical engineering world. I did an undergraduate and postgraduate in computing, you know, like you do. Worked writing code. Uh, COBOL, you might remember that. Assembler, power builder. <laughs> Finally got into Smalltalk, um, then into uh, C++, um, and started building object-oriented software. Now, you'll notice that a lot of the Agile community come from that OO world. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I think uh, Ken and Jeff were actually met talking about objects, and obviously the first time Scrum was talked about was at Uppsala, which is the uh, OO uh, conference back in the day. Not sure if it still exists now. So I came that same route, uh, or route, depending on what country you're in. Um, we, so I became, um, after building software commercially, I then became um, the product manager for something called the RUP, the Ration Unified Process. So I worked with, uh, with Dean Leffingwell and, and, and some others, um, obviously Eva Jakobsen, um, Jim Rumba, Grady Booch, all of these leaders in that time. Now RUP was the de facto standard way of building software in the 90s, probably. Uh, incredibly successful, um, uh, flawed in many ways, and we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, but I was a product manager. Now, uh, I learned very quickly that being a product manager, which if you notice the first time Scrum was talked about, the, the role was the product manager, not the product owner. And, and there has been a change in thinking about what the role is as we've evolved it, and I'll, I'll share more of that later. But I was a product manager for RUP. And my big stakeholders knew much more about RUP than I did, or much more about process improvement. Imagine having a conversation with Grady Booch about architecture. I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, I'm a kindergartner and he's like a professor. I mean, it's, it's, that's the kind of conversation. So I learned a lot about product ownership, really, and about the fact that it's about leading your stakeholders, enabling those, you know, building a vision, consensus, you know, a lot of, do I say politics? Anyway, so I was the product manager. Then I I'm, you know, got promoted away from that, like everybody. Um, moved to uh, Boston, um, uh, well, Lexington, just outside Boston. 
and then did a number of things, including working for Eli Jacobson, running his U.S. business, which was interesting. You know, never run a business before, so that was unique. And it was in the area that I was interested in, Rupp. And interesting, that's when I came into contact with, um, with Scrum. I worked actually with Jeff, not, not Ken, even though I'd met Ken a few years before and became friends. He was far too expensive, so we used Jeff on the project, which is, which is a ironic, isn't it? Uh, or I think he may have been too busy. I don't know. Uh, I, I, but, um, so I learned about Scrum and actually took out from Rupp the, the iterative nature of Rupp and, and put Scrum in there and then wrapped it with Rupp. So the sprints were informed by the use cases and that the use cases drove the backlog and the backlog drove... Hmm, looks a bit like safe, hey? Anyway, so we started working in that, and that was really, really successful. Ivar didn't like that approach, so we fell out, and I left um, Ivar Jakobsen in a positive way. He's an amazing guy, and went to Forrester, ran the app dev practice at Forrester Research, which was, which was fun. Realized that being at Forrester was a bit like going to a party and not drinking, or you know, not taking part. You don't actually do any you talk about things you learn some amazing stuff you work with some awesome people but you don't actually do anything mm-hmm. uh, other than write which is great and but it uh, isn't my vocation writing um so i then went to a startup called Tastop and ran product for Tastop. so product interestingly it evolved into engineering and architecture all reported into me as well so we had go to market on one side under the ceo and product on the other which mm-hmm. basically uh, sell the sausage build, design, and plan the next sausage, you know, um, and those two organizations, which was an interesting structure. We got VC funding. We grew to a you know, little bit under 100 people. Uh, actually, they just launched um, the, the product that I was really driving. The vision was just, just launched recently, um, which is interesting. Funny not to be there. You just kind of feel, oh, that was my eye. Uh, but anyway, so and then uh, I didn't want to leave. But Ken, who I'd been my mentor from the from the early 2000s when I met, he persuaded me to leave. So I joined Scrum.org and as product owner and CEO. Now, that's an interesting combination. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's natural, actually. Yeah, can you explain? Um, because I noticed in, the, in preparing mm-hmm. that there's sometimes uh, people refer to you as the CEO of Scrum.org and sometimes as the product owner. But, yeah. Um, and, and in the Scrum framework, I guess uh, the best product owners are, are described as mini CEOs in a lot of trainings. Yeah, this, interestingly. This, this uh, verbiage is calling, the, uh, yeah. uh, passing by. So, yeah, so it was. Um, how is that for you? Uh, it, it's interesting that you ask that because, you know, so ultimately the product owner role is, is a benevolent dictator who, de- who determines what priorities. Uh, what the actual product's going to do, what the mm-hmm. value that product's going to deliver. Ultimately, they are accountable for delivering value to the organization via the product that they're creating. I like to think of products in terms of customer outcomes rather than bits and bytes, um, but it depends on your sort of philosophy, I guess. Ultimately, it's about delivering value to customers, to end customers. And, and maybe that turns into money, maybe it doesn't, you know, whatever, however you measure that value, you know, etc. So, um, so I'm responsible for Scrum. I'm the product owner of Scrum at Scrum.org. So I'm responsible for uh, ensuring the value of our training, our community, uh, our thought leadership, particularly around Scrum and, and, the, and the, um, the Scrum Guide and all the materials and thought leadership around Scrum and the assessment, the decoupled assessments that Scrum.org provides. I'm responsible for the value that delivers. 
So that's why I'm the product owner at Scrum.org. Interestingly though, I'm also the CEO. Now, the, there's, a, there's a bit of a disconnect here and there's a challenge. Hence the reason why in the product owner, SP, uh, the professional Scrum product owner class, it's gone from, from mini CEO to entrepreneur. And the reason why, and, and that's very appropriate for Prowareness who use, they have entrepreneurs, but they're not CEOs. They're responsible for the PL of that product that they sell or collection of services that they sell but they're not ultimately responsible for the whole organization. There's a lot of other stuff that affects the organization. Now, you could argue, well, that means if you should be responsible for all of that as a product owner, maybe. But what I've identified is, so for, for instance, you, know, you should never have a Scrum Master and a product owner the same person. We learned that in Scrum, Scrum 101, right? Now, interestingly though, what happens if the Scrum Master reports to the product owner? Well, they're paid by the product owner because ultimately they determine what's being delivered, etc. But account, you know, whether, yeah, there's some interesting challenges there. Mm -hmm. What happens when we haven't got a scrum master? Do, you know, what tends to happen in an organization, the most senior person steps in and sort of like tries or, or gets somebody else to do it, etc. But then that gets in the way of self-organization. There are definitely some conflicts. Uh, hence the reason why we changed the verbiage in, 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 the, in the class. I, don't, I think the intent is fine. I think the intent is that the product owner has to own the P&L for that product. Yeah. It is highly likely that an organization um, has many things. Also, a CEO has, has certain um, uh, professional standing in the community. You know, you have to, there's some legal implications of yes. being a CEO as well. Should they be, those legal implications be on the product owner? Maybe, maybe not. It, it, you know, it's horses for courses. But yeah, I do both roles at scrum.org. Sometimes I talk about being a CEO when I'm, I want to use my position, I guess, because not everybody understands what a product owner is. When I'm talking about the content and the value, then I very much focus on being the product owner. Cool. Well, that clears it up, at least for me. I hope also for the people viewing this. Um, and today, obviously, we will uh, go more into the product owner part because yeah, let's not uh, talk that's about our audience uh, yeah. today. Uh, <laughs> I'd rather not talk about it. I think I'm a rubbish CEO, but I'm a much better product owner. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think then maybe we can learn more about your experiences as a CEO. Let's say the product owner stuff. Uh, so um, um, another question uh, I would like to ask uh, about this topic uh, to round off the introduction, I think, is... Um, uh, You're working with Ken Schwaber. Uh, Ken mm. Schwaber is uh, like one yeah. of the two godfathers of Scrum. Yeah, uh, and of the Agile movement. Key and of the drive, Agile movement, yeah. uh, exactly. Uh, uh, he was in Snowbird, uh, yep. uh, putting up the manifesto and, and everything. So um, how do you work with that kind of a stakeholder? Because you are the CEO and product owner, and what is Ken now in Scrum.org? So he's my biggest stakeholder. And yes. that's an interesting thing in, in, in the real world. Not that I'm not in the real world, but you know what I mean. Uh, there's some days I don't feel like I'm in the real world. That's a whole different thing. You know? But the, um, what's interesting about uh, the, this, 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 this distinction, this relationship, or the, this situation, is that it's not dissimilar to most organizations. Maybe they've got more Ken Schwabers than one, you know. Uh, but I have more Ken Schwabers than one. I have 174 professional scrum trainers. Each of those are sort of mini Ken Schwabers. In fact, some of them are even louder than Ken Schwaber. You know, they all have an opinion of where Scrum's going. They all have a certain confidence that talking in front of people every day creates for them. They uh, all have uh, a certain, you know, the, the classic uh, joke, or the difference between a terrorist and a methodologist. You can reason with a terrorist. You know, these people tend to believe very strongly in what they do, which is great and incredibly important. So, 
So having Ken is both a blessing and, and you know, I, actually it's always a blessing. I was going to say a blessing and a curse. <laughs> the reason why I'd say it's a curse is because having somebody that knows infinitely more than you'll ever know about Scrum, knows its history, knows the decisions that have been made around it, knows a lot about the business of Scrum, the training, the certification, the community, and probably knows more than you will ever know. And that's probably true of you guys, if you do it, if you're a product. There's probably people in your organization, for whatever reason, that aren't a product owner, but that know more about that product than you do. Know more about the market that you do. It was certainly true of Rupp with Grady, Ivar, Jim, Walker, uh, Philippe, um, and all the other people that I had to deal with on a regular basis. They all knew more about Rupp than I did. I think the reason why I got the job was because I was likable. You know, I wasn't going to cause you know, waves, etc. So product ownership is a leadership role. Now, depending on your situation, you'll lead in different ways. Sometimes you have to be almost decronian, a very direct, this is how it is, the product. Yes. You know, that's sort of like the Steve Jobs model. Yeah. You're all idiots, get rid of all those products, just focus on that. Yes. You know? The dictator. The dictator, the very, yes. you know, the, the very dictatorial kind of product owner. Sometimes a product owner you know, it works in a very different way, where ultimately it's about managing multiple stakeholders and getting some sort of ideas and getting a consistency, getting consensus, driving that consensus into the team to deliver stuff. You know, and, and, you know, the, and degrees between those two. Mm -hmm. In some situations you'll need to be more dictatorial, some situations you'll need to be more consensus building. But ultimately, when working with Ken, what I've learned is that he's such a fountain of knowledge. He knows so much. And... And it's just incredible to grab that. So my job isn't to tell him stuff, which you think that ownership is about telling people. It's about to ask him the right questions, to get the information, to put that in context, and then present that back, dare I call that empiricism, to get feedback so I can inspect and adapt and then drive the scrum team or the community or the industry as a whole in that direction. I don't think I necessarily do that well always. I don't always ask the right questions. Um, and sometimes I'll go in with an opinion that is fundamentally wrong and flawed in terms of priorities or in terms of value. One thing you l I've learned about being a product owner, and you, know, you can all, you all do it in your own unique way, is that arrogance is the biggest, is the biggest problem for, for, pro pro for pro product ownership. Believing that you, you've got the ultimate answer. Now, you might think, well, sometimes you need to be confident when, you are in, when you're in a situation where you don't know. Yes! I'm not saying there's a difference between confidence and arrogance mm -hmm. and not listening, not understanding, not being empirical, you know, not putting the measures in place to actually get the insight which you then can present back. So when I deal with Ken or when I talk to Jeff or when I talk to the community, I, I, I try, I don't always succeed, but I try to always be asking lots of good questions and then give uh, my vision, roadmap, ideas, what we're doing next, the priorities, etc. And then listen to their feedback. And sometimes change, sometimes don't. You know, so, so working with Ken is, is awesome because I get the ability to ask him those questions. It's, it's frustrating for me because I don't sometimes know the right questions to ask him. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm getting every day getting better. And sometimes I forget a great question that I should have asked him and then I realize I didn't ask him and I'm like, oh, um, you know, so, you know, it, but it is interesting. It's, yes. uh, it, it is a, it's a, it's challenging, but that's challenging for you guys at home as well, I'm sure. Yeah, I think that's a, a very interesting that you mentioned that a product owner is not per se the person that has the most knowledge or 
uh, skill in the product or the domain. Uh, but uh, uh, it's more about the skills you need to navigate uh, all the stakeholders, uh, filter out knowledge, uh, see the true value uh, when you bring it to customers. Because uh, I imagine uh, when you discuss uh, uh, with Ken or Jeff or other stakeholders, uh, PSTs, and they have great ideas, that you still have to translate it to, okay, what's the entire picture and how do I value this in, in my entire backlog? Yeah. So that's, uh, that's very interesting. It's funny you brought that up. So one thing, the one challenge when you, 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 you have to be trusted. You have to be trusted by all your stakeholders. You have to be just trusted by your development team. Yeah, you need mandates. So you, yeah. you need that, 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 that trust to allow you to do that mandate, to allow you to execute on a plan. So sometimes that is a challenge because in your, if you're in a situation where you don't know stuff, and you are asking questions, you can lose credibility quite quickly. So you have to do it, and this is the skill. Um, you have to do it in a way that allows them to feel like you kind of know what you're doing, but you, 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 know, you value their input, you make them, you play to their, to their, uh, to their uh, needs, as it were, and, uh, which is hard. Being surrounded by smart, as any good product owner, you need to be surrounded by smart people. Because your success, you're blooming accountable. The last mm-hmm. thing you want to do is be accountable without any help. These yes. people help you be successful. These people will have those insights. Sometimes you're going to have to ignore them and trust your gut. Sometimes you won't. You know, but ultimately, the beauty of Scrum is the mistakes you make are small. And if you can make small mistakes, then you're in a much better position than making big mistakes. Because <laughs> you're going to make mistakes. That's, that's just the reality. Yeah. You know, we, we've had you know, a PSM 2 and 3. So we restructured our PSMs. So there's now mm-hmm. 1, 2, 3. And uh, we created something called PSP, which was instead of PSM 1, 2, 3, it was PSM 1, PSM 2, and then this PSP thing. Which was, and there was a lot of confusion and churn around that. We brought it out, did a limited, we got it to market, got some feedback, learned that the questions were good, learned that, but learned that everybody was confused by its name, its position, and its value. And what it, so we went back and we renamed it, we restructured everything, we, we admitted we were wrong. And uh, doing things like that um, requires trust with your stakeholders, doing things like that requires trust with your development team, and it's challenging to, to do that. Great. Um, well... You maybe already have mentioned it in talking about your collaboration with Ken and uh, becoming a product owner, but what would you say is the single most important skill for a product owner to bring to the table? Yeah. Because it's not the domain knowledge per se that, that we established, right? Mm. So, but what is? Is it that uh, being able to talk uh, on a level that you can still ask uh, questions from the people that have this domain knowledge, that have, have these smarts uh, to help you dis- make decisions? Mm. Um, uh, without being like uh, uh, really uh, seen as ignorant, or are there other things that are even more important than that? I think I think I think there's three things that, that a product owner must be able to to do. Mm-hmm. One is to be able to effectively problem solve, un- understand the problem, break it down, really get to the heart of it. Ask those right questions. Do I say analytical skills? I mean, I don't know what the uh, what the terms are, but ultimately they must be able to either using techniques like story mapping or whatever, whatever those right techniques are, or just the five whys, or they should be able to get to the heart of the problem. Secondly, they must have empathy. I think product ownership is ultimately the the the, the most empathic. You have to you have to you have to have empathy not only for your development team, which is important because you have to understand where they're coming from, 
and your stakeholders, but more importantly, the customer. Ultimately, you're building products that people have to want. Now, even if they're forced to use them, they still have to want them in some way. And I know, I'd be surprised. I, I was like, oh my God, I'm using this, I don't know, finance app or whatever. And you're like, I really don't want you. But, but no, but having that sort of empath to be able to empath empathize with you, it's a hard word to say, particularly when you've been drinking. Not that I have. Anyway, so, but it is Holland. Yeah, and it is a scrum face to face. And it is today. a scrum face to face. So there will know. be drinking There's after. Heavily, yeah, shots before your scrum, you know, it's good like that. But you're having that empathy with your customer is crucial because understanding their pain understanding their the outcomes that they desire being able to appreciate the the challenges that they they have remember that most products are only partial solutions so being able to understand that's your solution in the context of their problem in the context of their life is really really important and the third thing is and this is this is being a fabulous orator Maybe that's not the right word. Visionary, I don't know if that's the right word. Being able to get that true north, being able to set, this is the hill, and get everybody behind you. So that's working politics, that's working, you know, using the techniques necessary, taking people out to get them drunk, whatever those things are, getting incriminating photos of them, whatever those things are, I don't know. But driving that vision to, to, to get everybody behind it, even if it's wrong. And that's, that's, that's the crucial thing, you know, saying, I, I always worry, we talk a lot about with Lean Startup and the whole hypothesis-driven development, we talk a lot about experiments. And most, it's hard to get excited about an experiment which may or may not bode results. It's great to believe, you know, that to get behind a product that's going to deliver something. Now, so you have to balance that sort of hypothesis. This is what we're trying to find out with the value of finding that out and what it would mean if we understood this. You know, so getting people behind that is, is really crucial. So empathy, visionary, uh, and, and a great problem, you know, analytical sort of problem solver. Those three characteristics... If you've got those three characteristics and, uh, and broad shoulders to deal with all the people that moan at you, and, uh, and, uh, yeah. and then you'll be fine. Okay, great. Well, that's, uh, that's a lot of knowledge. Uh, we could actually stop here. I mean, this is, this is what people need, right? But that won't <laughs> okay. be fun because okay. I have some other questions. Okay. Um, so um, you alluded to the vision already a bit, uh, having a vision, uh, mm. delivering it, even though it might, may be wrong. I don't know if you were referring to the American president uh, at that we point. We don't talk about we that. We don't go into that here, right? <laughs> there, There's no. Twitter for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, no, uh, the vision, I think that's one of the most important uh, topics uh, in, in my basic uh, comprehension of the product ownership because it starts with the vision yeah. and you need to be able to rally people behind your vision uh, to get them to do these experiments and know where to go to self-organize it, it enables all these things if you have this vision so um, for you as a product owner at scrum.org um, I know you've been talking about the vision for the next 20, 21 years, uh, depending yeah. on when you gave the talk I guess <laughs> uh, so can you explain um, what the vision is for Scrum.org uh, and how you came to that vision uh, as you're currently so, driving it? I don't know whether this is 21-year vision, but it's a vision for where we're going next with some of the ideas around Scrum. It's funny, Scrum as a, as a framework, the thing that we need to... The vision for Scrum is, is not that it's going to change because one of its ultimate powers is that this 16-page Scrum guide, this 
you know, translated into 43 languages. This very simple empirical process that allows us through the three pillars of inspection, adaption, via transparency, it hasn't changed massively. Yes, there's been some words changing, and that's the important point. What the changes we see around Scrum, the core Scrum, is really just communicating it better, communicating in a different way because the customers of Scrum have changed. You know, the you know the you. you when Scrum was developed, I think you probably were quite young. You were probably in school or, or, or maybe before that even. You know, the, the, you know the, the point is the words that you understand, the ideas are different, your, your vocabulary, your norms, your culture. So one of the most important things for Scrum continually is re-articulating what Scrum is in the language that makes sense to the audience of that time. So it's improving how we describe Scrum. So that's one thing that we, that we always are striving for, and that will continue forever, I think. But Scrum itself won't change. What will change, I think, is the things around it. Um, things like, so one of the most important things, Scrum is empirical, so the idea of an empirical process is that you continuously, uh, uh, you deliver something, you observe it, you then learn by it, so you plan and adapt, you know, you sort of inspect this thing and you adapt, etc. Inspection and adaption through transparency, we talk about that all the time. But how do you measure the value? And the product owner is responsible for value. But how do you measure that? How do you ensure that you're delivering the most value for your customer? How do you do it when value is clouded? Even for the customer. You can't say, hey, is this feature or this capability or this PBI more valuable than this one? They don't know. Remember, most products are just partial solutions and they then have to fill in all the blanks. The context is incredibly hard to articulate. So... One thing that we've been working on, EBM is evidence-based uh, measurement, is uh, this idea that we need to start identifying things, values, around the products, the things that you're delivering in a t- from, a, from a Scrum team or a, or a Nexus, a team of teams. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, we need to do that in, a, in an effective way. And we've been doing some work on those three dimensions, you know, the, 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 the current value, the the innovation and the release frequency and then being able to balance because the other thing about value that's really important is I could you know one way of measuring a software product that's in a market for B2C market so customers buy it from an app store say it's easy dollars right easy peasy really is that the only thing so I worked with VCs VCs mm-hmm. are very simple they measure your success by the valuation of the company the valuation is determined by two variables the revenue of the company, they can influence that, or they think they can. And the value, and the, and the sort of, a, uh, the multiplier, the, in this market, companies at this revenue have this much value. So if you're in the SaaS market, you have this. If you're in the CRM market, you have this. You know, they tend to be determined by the market cap. They can't influence that. Or it's very hard for a normal size VC to influence that. It is possible, but hard. So they concentrate on revenue, revenue, revenue. So, how would you articulate your product value to them? You just talk about revenue, right? Yeah, great. But then, how do you ensure technical debts being mitigated? Because delivering new features, predominantly for customers, which is all they care about, because that closes deals. Deals make value. Value is, you know, times that by the market. You've got, you know, that's that's just so you have to balance. Yes. Otherwise, you know, you're always tempted to take the shortcuts, especially when you're doing uh, iterations. Like always, the shortest cut uh, road to more value. Exactly, like monetary value. You'll deliver the, the most <laughs> obvious value. Yes, I'd like to call exactly, it obvious. Exactly, and in different yeah. situations, what obvious means is different. But but in the case of a, a commercial software product, obvious is revenue usually yes. as a rule. 
uh, unless you've got some weird business model like GitHub or whatever. Anyway, so but you know, so you've got in these situations, but that ultimately, remember, there's a there's a professional element to Scrum. You know, you and Proud Awareness have invested heavily in what you describe as professional Scrum. That's the brand that we believe in. We believe that you've got imp- professionalism at the heart is empiricism. Surround that by good engineering practices, good product practices, good good practices, yeah, and a series of values. You know, the five values. Make sure that that you you're doing it in a professional way. So that means that value has to be in the same way. You have to think about it in terms of, are we increasing our technical debt to deliver this particular immediate value? Are we delivering, um, uh, are we doing this and it's gonna make it longer in the long run to deliver to market? Is, are we basically, um, you know, what's the expression, giving it to Peter and um, robbing Paul or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. are we, so balance is important. Balance and harmony for a product is crucial. So we need to give them measures, and EBM tries to do that with these three different dimensions. I say try because we don't know for sure, and we're still experimenting with these ideas. But, but ultimately, I think the Scrum community needs to build a series of measures or a framework around some measures that wraps around Scrum, that helps product owners and the Scrum teams that are delivering to deliver the right thing in the right way um, uh, that, that focuses on value but in the tr- holistic view. The other thing that I think Scrum is, is interesting is really scale. Hmm. So, so there's a lot about scaling. I know you yourself, you happen to be, uh, uh, work, work very long, much with this SAFE uh, community. And, and um, obviously Dean is, uh, is part of my history and my life. And I, I respect him greatly and I respect that community. There's some really smart people doing some amazing things. Ultimately, though, I believe that, that scaling has many dimensions and and I think that one thing that we miss in Scrum people think about it just for one team right one team it's easy to apply you've got seven plus or minus two you've got a Scrum Master a product owner you connect them closer to the customer you you empower your product owner to make decisions you let your Scrum Master actually get rid of impediments and job done yeah there's some situations where for many reasons you need multiple teams working on the same product Scrum out of the box you would say doesn't help you to do that Ken would argue and Jeff would argue, of course it does. You just have to be intelligent. It's not, this is a framework you can add to it. Don't be such a, you know, whether it be scrum of scrums, whether it be. So we realized about two years ago, two and a half years ago, that, that, that people weren't perhaps as um, able to grasp those concepts. So one thing that we drive a lot into the product is this idea of nexus, this scrum of scrum kind of model, you could argue, but multiple teams working on the same endeavor in, a, in an effective way. And uh, putting in some additional ceremonies, additional artifacts, and additional uh, roles that help that to work, you know, um, formalizing Scrum of Scrums, formalizing how the teams interact, just to provide the very, very, very lightweight framework to allow teams to work together. Now, you might say, well, in SAFE, we talk about planning and release trains. It doesn't focus on that. What it focuses on is delivery. It, focus on, it focuses on how you get your teams to work together. It focuses on how you raise transparency and how you do inspection and adaption. SAFE really doesn't talk about any of those things other than use Scrum or use Lean or whatever technique. So what's interesting is very complementary to that, and it's called Nexus. So that's definitely something we've been working on a lot and the community is driving. The third thing really is around what does a... So I would argue that that a lot of the scaling frameworks today are very much focused on what existing organizations are and how do we allow them to be more agile, which is great. 
We've been thinking a lot about how you can transform and transition organizations to be that next generation of organization. You know, small organic clusters of teams working on common pursuits, dare I say products, measured in an effective way. So one phrase that we've been using a lot is studio or scrum studio, this idea of a, of a hack really that, that breaks stuff out of your organization and provides a different framework. Because we've seen a lot of people do it now. Digital, digital groups, digital transformations, mm-hmm. digital departments, digital, you know, they go out of their own organization. KLM, great example here in, 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 uh, in Holland, uh, uh, KLM Air France, awesome organization. You know, they've created this whole digital organization that's very different from their traditional IT organization and works in a very different way. Scrum is at the heart of that. And they're doing some amazing stuff. Capital One's doing the same. You know, you've got all these companies that are wrestling and they've pulled out digital because they realize that a traditional organization is built around a different set of mandates. It's built around efficiency. It's built around optimization of, 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 of work. It's, it's built around maximum responsibility, minimum accountability. You know, all those sort of things. So we could call that risk management. You know, the, uh, all of those things get in the way of agility. I mean, agile is really simple, and some of those things are incredibly important for efficient organizations, but incredibly disruptive to an agile organization, which ultimately is trying to deliver value mm-hmm. in a most effective way in, a, in an environment that we don't know. So there's a lot of work going on a, around that. And then there's just good old stuff like the role of the product owner. I, as I said at the start of this conversation, I think we need to really invest more time and effort in communicating the importance of the product owner. I don't believe the product owner is, is a different role from a product manager. Um, I do believe that, it, it, so I don't believe in that separation that, that SAFE would encourage uh, personally. Now, does it work in some organizations? Of course. Is it necessary in some organizations? Probably. But ultimately, there's only one product owner, and that product owner is a leadership role responsible for delivering value. Now, does that mean that they have certain, if in a big situation, they'll have many people working with them, for them even, who are ultimately doing a lot of the work of, say, market sizing, product marketing, if it's a software product, or business requirements analysis, or financial modeling, or all the things that you need to do, competitive analysis, all those things. But ultimately, the product owner is the person that's accountable, that's asking the right questions of all those people to get that, to make those decisions to drive the product in that right direction. I believe that you know, we need to invest more in helping people understand why a product owner is needed in that way and why it needs to be a business role and it can't just be a technology role. It's not a glorified business analyst. It really, really isn't. That doesn't mean a business analyst can't be that person. No, but, it, but when they are that person, then it often becomes an order taker, not an order maker. It becomes a requirements person rather than a deciding person. It becomes a consensus building. You know, you end up with a it, it, you don't get agility, you don't get responsiveness, you don't get the ability to deliver working software in an empirical way. You get waterfall. Yes. So um, there was a lot of useful info, but uh, I want to zoom in on the last thing you said about uh, the product owner at scale. Um, I guess basically what you're saying is keep the product owner, don't put people above it, uh, but be smart about it and make sure that you have this one person that has... Uh, the mandate and, uh, uh, and, and takes all the, the info that's available to make these decisions. Yes. Uh, um, whereas at a, in a, a smaller scale situation, the product owner would be able to gather a lot of more info. Yeah, might do more work or themselves. Might, yeah. yeah. 
So, but be smart about it, right? So th- that's also what, yeah. you, what you mentioned about scaling Scrum. What uh, <laughs> Jeff, about it, Jeff yeah. and Ken said, well, you can figure it out. I mean, it's not difficult, just add something. Uh, it's interesting. But, but, but we need to uh, help people, teach people when they're uh, in the early stages, I think. And that's why I think it's good that multiple organizations are thinking about ways to scale Agile or even scale around Scrum because yeah. there's also uh, the less framework and other types of stuff around that uh, try to really do the, the, the right thing for scaling Agile all from different viewpoints. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I rejoice in the fact that there's many people thinking about this problem and trying to solve it. I, I, I like the fact there's multiple solutions and, because all of them have some merit and some value. What worries me is um, the prescriptive nature of some solutions. What, what we learned with Scrum, mm-hmm. when, when Scrum was initially uh, I mean, created, it was a, um, obviously the Uppsala paper in 96, but, but, the, but what was interesting is that it was, it was or 95, sorry, it was, it was, the, it was this, uh, it became quite this comprehensive methodology, like a lot more detail. And, and Ken and Jeff stepped back from it and said, hang on a minute. This only applies in this situation. What about this situation? Oh, well, it's not right for Scrum. Is it? Wouldn't it benefit empiricism? Oh, yeah. But Scrum's got all this stuff in it. So, frankly, the lightweight nature, that, that, um, that least prescriptive, that's the least prescriptive approach is, and is, is the better a model. Because the thing that I worry about is that, and, and it's interesting, SAFE's doing this as well with Essential SAFE. And, you know, that you have to end up going back to, because I learned with RUP. I learned, some, I learned a lot of things with Rupp. I, I learned a lot of great stuff, and I learned some stuff I would never do again. I learned that, that people asked for two things with Rupp, which was hilarious. They asked, I, I, we need maintenance, we need uh, real-time embedded, we need mainframe development, we need database development, we need SAP development, and can you make it shorter? It's far too complicated and stuff. I was like, well, hang on a minute, what did you just say? You know, that they, they, they wanted the, they want to just, they don't want to think. They want to, and obviously, you know, many, dare I say, religions and, uh, and government, government processes have definitely benefited from the desire of the population not to think. But they want to sit down and be told that this is the thing and these are the people that we need and these are the roles and this is how it works and this is a simulation of it and this is what we're going to learn on training then we're going to do it. You're going to, we're going to transition into these roles and these are the new artifacts, and, which is great if, if every problem was the same. But every software problem isn't the same. Even if it's delivering a, a website, the team's unique, the problem domain's unique, the customers are different. Even if it's building an, uh, you know, a car, you, every car's the same, right? So it must be the same process, really, is it? No, because the reason why Toyota invented lean was because of the constraints that they were under in, in Japan just after the Second World War. You know, ultimately, the world is an incredibly complicated place. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think we've learned that over the, in 2016 by the surprises that came from, to us. So ultimately, I think if you believe that you can build the prescript, this ultimately, you know, really prescriptive, very detailed process to scale, then I think you will always, always fail. So that's the reason why I think that we try to hold true to the, to the, to the, to the agile principles of lightweight, of of non-prescriptive, of simple. Yes, we're very prescriptive of the three roles, but that's as far. You know, we don't tell you if you need a tester, a DBA, a designer, etc. You know, and I, and I think that that 
that's also quite interesting with respect to you know, the product owner role and, and where it's evolving. And I have a challenge with that because I want to tell people how I've done it, how I've experienced it. But that's because of the situations I've been in, not because of it being the right way for everybody to do it, I think. Great. Well, that's actually a very nice um, bridge into uh, going into what your experience is, because that is why we have this podcast, to share experiences of product owners, whether they may fit for the people listening or not, that's for them to figure out. Uh, they get new practice and, uh, practices and experiments to try out. So um, within the, your organization, um, if you work with your team, um, uh, how does that work? Because I know uh, from reading the Scrum.org website, uh, among other things, that uh, Scrum is still presented as a software development mm. framework. Right? Yeah. And this, is, this was also uh, at the, the Scrum Day Europe, uh, I think, last year, talked about a bit by some people. Yeah. Um, because you see Scrum is also used widely in mm. marketing, in HR, in uh, the business agility uh, uh, stuff where uh, Mike Beadle is uh, currently doing a lot of stuff, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, writing the book, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in your case, you're developing uh, a product which is actually not software except for the site where you display your product, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. So can you t talk to the, the product owners uh, mm. at home listening? <laughs> that's actually a really interesting question. So How you there's, a, there's a few different things that you yes. talked about there. You talked about one... So the mission of, of uh, Scrum.org is not about Scrum, it's about improving the profession of software delivery. Uh, that changed at Scrum Day um, last year in Scrum Day London and then Scrum Day Europe because historically it's been development. Uh, I think ultimately what we care about at Scrum.org is, is agile product delivery, to be fair. I, I think that yes, we do talk a lot about software because the majority of organizations now are software organizations. You know, United Airlines is a airline with wings. So a computer com software company with wings. You know, yeah. the every, every software is the ultimate flex. It's the thing that connects you with customers, that provides better insights, that delivers new products. You know, da da da. So software is the most important commodity, in my opinion, in in the world. So, but we're very much focused on products, which allows organisations like me to take advantage of all the ideas. Now, can Scrum be applied in other contexts? Of course it can, and it should be. In fact, it's awesome at all those things. Are we at scrum.org focused on those? No, that's, that's just the reality. We're a small organization, we can only do so many things, and you know, our mission is very clear. It focuses on agile product delivery, really. I mean, that's ultimately what we're trying to do, and improving the profession around that. So that's where we focus. Uh, uh, as an organization, that's how I work, luckily, because I'm delivering agile products. I'm delivering products to market, uh, of which an, software is an element of it. You're right, it's not the only element. So I think that's where we're focused, and I think that's probably the most, in my opinion, because of where I'm from, it's the most interesting place that, that Scrum's being applied. Yes, it can help in education. Yes, it can help in marketing. Interestingly, most marketing situations are very software-oriented now. So it's very hard to see that line. You know, you're building a lot of software to deliver a, you know, a new microsite, a new campaign. You're updating CRM systems. You're creating you know, event trackers. You're doing analytics and reporting. You're doing it in an empirical way. You have a real definition of what value is. It's pretty straightforward. You fit that into your process. You know, so marketing's interesting. 
HR, very software-oriented world, you know, most of the training and capabilities, most of the acquisition of talent, it has software at it. You know, so software becomes a part of a lot of these organizations anyway. Productization becomes a part. They have to start thinking about ultimately the outcomes they're trying to achieve with their marketing campaign or their whatever they're doing in marketing. Same is true of HR, same is true of all the other departments that are doing it. I have less interest in education and using software, unless it's around products that are software products or, or even actually saying that though I mean ultimately uh, uh, an education like an MBA or whatever is a product right Intra- interestingly it's got content yeah it's got actually interesting it's got customers that are probably tracked in some sort of system you know you obviously convert them obviously they, they have an experience through the live Ooh, wow sounds a bit like a, a software thing building a house less interested in building boats building Cars, well, cars full of software. So I think it depends on how you think of the world, um, whether how applicable those ideas. We use Scrum at Scrum.org. We use it because we're working in a very dynamic world with PSTs and everybody giving us lots of information. The environment is very dynamic. Having that inspection and adaption, having clear measures that we know how successful we are, being able to you know, inspect that on a two-week cadence, which is our sprint cadence, is very, very important. We deliver throughout the sprint, interestingly. We do stuff that goes out on the website or, new, you know, whatever, a new collateral hits the world or whatever that is, go to an event or whatever we're doing. But ultimately, we inspect and adapt to... So we, we inspect on what we've done that two weeks. We deliver throughout. We meet daily to help to see if the team needs help, if people... So we use Scrum there. I have a backlog. It's prioritized. It's part of a vision, an ultimate vision for where we're taking it, which I shared some of those ideas earlier. So we use Scrum ourselves, and it's very, very effective at helping us work as a team in this kind of chaotic, dare I say, almost nightmare world that we, that we all live in today. It would be much easier if it was a lot slowed down. Yes, but then you wouldn't need Scrum. Probably not. So I wouldn't have. So you're saying I wouldn't have a job. Yeah, which is probably true. So maybe live in changing times and then buy Scrum. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, not not total chaos, but some complexity Complex. is, is yeah. allowed and, and d- dynamic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That probably makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting that you also uh, mentioned that delivering throughout the sprints, mm. because that's often a misconception for people first. Uh, yeah. Getting in touch with Scrum and the concepts uh, behind it, and especially in the current world where continuous delivery is, uh, is, is kind of a hot topic, uh, the DevOps uh, buzzword. Um, so you're delivering throughout the, the sprint, which is totally normal in Scrum, right? There's no rule that says you can't deliver before having a review or whatever. No, it's a review. It's not a, it's not a, so people always try to take what they're doing today and fit that into the model, the future model. So they take their current iterative development, maybe they're not waterfall in the truest sense, but they're iterative, and they have a phase gate at the end of each iteration to determine whether you can go live with that piece of functionality you built in that iteration. Dare I call that a mini waterfall. Scrum is not a mini waterfall. We don't know the order of stuff inside the sprint. We allow the team to decide and to self-organize and manage that work. That's a key part of Scrum. What's interesting, though, is that this, the sprint review is not a phase gate. That's a myth that is very easy to pick up. It's not the acceptance moment, right? Yeah, it's not an acceptance criteria. Your release process can happen continuously through the sprint. In fact, the best sprint reviews 
actually our best sprint reviews at scrum.org are when hang on we did that we took we did that event we took those stuff to market we update we ran that that uh, we published that newsletter we created some new content and we got some feedback on it from real people in the field do not consider the sprint review as a phase gate if you do, then you're going to be ultimately disappointed and, and you won't be very agile because it sort of constrains you. Now, it's possible that in some situations you aren't releasing continuously and, that's a, and then you're reviewing stuff that isn't in production. That's okay as well. I can't prescribe the perfect model. I do know that the faster you get stuff into the customer's hands at an appropriate level of quality to allow the customer to, have, to give real feedback you're much in a much better position. And I say appropriate quality because getting stuff into their hands when it's too early can actually undermine the feedback that they give you because they focus on things that you're like, no, 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 that's the bug. No, 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 we shouldn't have done that. No, no, no. And then they miss the point and you never really get the essence of their real feedback. So it has to be of an appropriate quality. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to give you, be able to give you the feedback. It has to be an experiment that, that gives you some results. Um, so yeah, I mean, you have to work whatever is right for you, but do not think of it as a phase gate, because if you do, then you're in trouble. Yes, so when you're delivering faster than every one or two weeks, you st- still can use Scrum, that's basically Definitely. The, yeah. In fact, you Scrum. should. Yeah. <laughs> because, so that's the other thing, if you're doing continuous delivery, do you do a retro and review every time you release? God, that sounds like a bit of an overhead, doesn't it? I mean, getting all your stakeholders together, or getting the people, getting your analytics up on a dashboard, doing all of that stuff. That's a, that's a nightmare. And so you say, well, hang on a minute, Dave. If I'm doing continuous delivery and I do get feedback rapidly into the, inside the sprint, can I react on that? Well, of course you can. You're not stupid now. You, what you shouldn't do, though, have that feedback undermine your sprint goal and take you off in a different direction. If it's in the context of your sprint goal and the work that you're working on, then you should take that feedback and use it. If, however, it's not, then don't. And the reason why I say don't is because People are really bad at changing context. So if you suddenly change the entire goal of the sprint because of some feedback that came in, by all means do that, but stop the sprint and then start another one. Don't try to change the direction of the sprint and muck about or trying to have it so it's doing two things at once because all you can do is confuse everybody. So focus is a key, or it's one of the key values of Scrum and it's incredibly important. So keep focused and... um, that doesn't mean you can't change stuff in the sprint based on the feedback you're getting during that sprint. But that has to be in the context of that sprint goal. That sprint goal, hopefully, is the thing that you use to drive focus. Yes, and the sprint goal is obviously related to the, the bigger vision or the, the, the theme you're currently working on with yeah, your definitely. team. Um, can you share with the product owners uh, viewing us, um, what's your approach to breaking down that vision to actionable sprint goals that you can actually deliver in these two-week increments? I mean, obviously, you know, the process of refinement is very important. You ultimately have a goal, which then is reflected into your product backlog as a series of chunks or bits of work. Those, Those chunks have to be refined into smaller chunks that can be delivered inside a sprint. That's very important. Uh, they also have to make some sense from a value point of view. So, uh, what, so, instead, so, I mean, the classic story is, hey, so I've got a three-tier architecture. Should I deliver the bottom, two, the bottom tier in the first sprint, the middle tier in the second sprint? No. I would always recommend uh, doing a slice where you deliver a little bit of everything. Why? What happens if we stop today? You know, you get, you'll get just some stuff that's completely no use whatsoever, right? Yeah. So I'm always a big fan of reprioritizing the backlog, 
based on slices or, of, of functionality. I'm also trying to keep it manageable so that you can deliver it something that's observable and measurable in one sprint, answering a question. I tried to look at the risk. I tried to do riskier things early and, 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 hard, and easier things later. I try now. You might say, "Why would you do that?" And Ken would disagree with me here. Uh, he <laughs> would say, "He would say, do the most things that are most valuable first, because doing the harder things, eh, whatever." So, of course, that's also a very inter- good strategy. It's a balance between that and making sure. I like to get things working up front. I like to make sure that we can actually deliver, because I know. If we deliver this and it fundamentally changes the entire database, the paradigm, the ideas, the, the whole bloody blimking thing, then everything else is going to be a mess. So I always look for those hard things, whereas Ken would encourage you to look for the most valuable things first. Mm-hmm. Ideally, do some sort of combination. Yeah, the, the, there's two ends of the spectrum, actually. Like uh, First, ge- uh, knowing how to get the delivery great and eliminating all sorts of risks. The other side is uh, first focusing on value and later fixing performance and other kind of stuff and, and seeing. But as yeah. you say correctly, the balance is, is where, uh, where the juice is. And that's hard. That's why the product owners need to ask. Remember, the product owner makes their decisions, not the team, mm-hmm. about what's being delivered. Now, ultimately, the, the team has a lot of information about decisions like that around scalability, performance, security, elasticity, all of these sort of really important there are, you know, non-functional requirements or, you know, uh, uh, characteristics of a system that we need to think about. So what's very, very, very important is that you, the product owner asks the questions of the team to ensure that they're balancing those things. I don't believe in a technical product owner and a business product owner and all of that kind of crap. There's only one product owner, but that product owner needs to be available to the team and the team needs to have the courage to talk to the product owner about these things. The worst situations I see is when a product owner is, is sort of hoodwinked by the team. The, the product owner never really knows what the team is doing. He thinks they're doing or she thinks they're doing these very big important stuff. The team's actually building loads of infrastructure to support the big things and they don't talk about that stuff. I think it's very important to be fully transparent so the team needs to articulate their needs to deliver this long-term product so the product owner can make some decisions. Now, hopefully, if we get EBM right, that will help frame those conversations because ultimately they have some value, whether it be short-term or long-term, to that product. Yeah, so would you say it is fair to um, uh, position EBM as a great tool for product owners to help them make the right decisions, uh, where uh, Scrum as a framework actually says nothing about this because they ju- it just wants to be lightweight. Uh, and uh, yeah. EBM says, okay, so we have the scrum for the process and then we can, you can use the practices from EBM to help you properly steer on the value and, uh, and other so, stuff. So that's actually a really interesting point. Whether it be EBM or, or, or something else, you know, I mean, I'm not... But that's your yeah, thing, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. Let's so talk EBM about is the thing that I'm interested <laughs> in. But ultimately, I think that every product owner needs to have a, a, a series of measures. And I think that anything in the backlog needs to contribute to those measures in some observable way. Uh, even if it's technical debt that you're mitigating, hopefully technical debt would... Ne- would necessitate or enable a more frequent delivery cadence, you know, or something mm-hmm. like that. Bottom line is that measurement is crucial to your backlog. 
to being able to frame your backlog and deliver the right things in the right order. And, and most, most product owners, I'll be honest, don't have measures. Mm-hmm. In fact, even at Scrum.org, we're slowly, incrementally building out measures because that requires work, which is how do you chicken and egg a bit? You know, you have to do work to create the measures and you haven't got the measures to determine which work you're going to do. Oh, my God. So, you, you know, so we're, we're at the moment slowly instrumenting our uh, processes and our, our technology and our products, really, mm-hmm. to actually start getting some of that information back so that we can make some better, more informed decisions about value. And... I think that all product owners need to think about that. I think if you don't, how do you, you, your decisions are always going to be subjective, not objective, aren't they? They can't help yes. but be. And Scrum is uh, an empirical method, right? Which so, requires measurement. And yes. if you haven't got the right measures, then you're totally in yes. trouble. So when starting Scrum, which is also very relevant for uh, uh, me as a, as a Scrum master or Agile coach, uh, helping people... Uh, set up their their first scrum teams and and first uh, backlogs and stuff so would you say uh, this is also something we should help them focus on from the start or is this something first get going and then look at the measuring I think uh, well I mean you know chicken and egg a bit but frankly um, I would encourage whether they be the right measures or the wrong measures I'd encourage you you to, to frame any scrum team in the context of some value and that value needs to be measurable and then without that, you know, and, and that's hard because, you know, you go to a customer, the customer's got these teams already existing, they're doing work, and you say to them, the first thing you say is, tell me a little bit about the product that you're building. We're not building a product, we're building a series of services. Those services are being used by 50 teams. How do you measure the value of those services? I don't know. You know, those, it's, you're in these situations instantly, and it makes your life hard, but you have to do it. You have to contextualize that that team's value, otherwise they can't just make decisions. The product owner is going to be always, you know, rowing uphill without a paddle or whatever. You know, he's never been able to make the right decisions. Or if they do make the right decision, they're going to prove that they've made the right decisions, you know? Yeah. So then they um, are either doing it purely uh, on their likability or whatever, uh, maintaining their role and having luck making choices, right? Mm. Instead of... Uh, uh, yeah, or more likely they're following what they think their, their stakeholders want. Yes. And uh, even if their stakeholders are wrong. Yeah. What is your favorite tool or practice that you employ for uh, um, helping stake- getting stakeholder uh, um, information into your backlog? I mean, do you like to use... Uh, 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 sessions where they help you with a story map or something yeah, like that. I mean, do, you have, do you use any tools like this or yeah, what's your interesting approach? Because I, I, I story maps, five whys, you know, root cause analysis, yeah. problem analysis. You know, I've used uh, Pendo, all these different techniques that you can use. Uh, and all of them are incredibly valuable depending on the situation. So I'd recommend spending some time. Design thinking is very hot at the moment. So, you know, it's sort of like holistic vision of customer needs and trying to do that. Elevator pitches, you know, who, when, what, how, you know, those sort of unlike, you know, those things are incredibly valuable. But ultimately, um, uh, rich pitches, which is an old soft systems technique by a guy mm-hmm. called Peter Checkland, again, before you were, uh, before you were born, <laughs> probably. But there's a, there's a technique that you can use just to do a picture of the problem. Mm-hmm. And that can be a really useful visual, visual aid to this, for having this conversation. There's many different things that you can use. Ultimately, it's having those conversations and trying different things to get different views. Uh, I, I try to 
basically tell stories. I, that, that's my style is to tell stories about customers or about problems and, 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 and then try to get that, try to share that empathy with my, with my stakeholders and see what their perspective on that story is. I think that stories, not user stories in the classic sort of Mike Cohen sort of way, uh, but, the, the, but stories in general are an incredibly valuable way for, for sharing ideas and for, for understanding things. That's what I do. Um, I think about stories. I think about people. I think about people using products. I think about the value they're trying to achieve, and then I describe it in that sort of way. But that's that. And all the other techniques work really well. Yeah. Um, five whys is fun. That always makes you go, oh bugger! I didn't really understand that customer. Um, <laughs> you know, look, yeah, those sort of things. Value mapping works. You know, they're all useful. Uh, but ultimately, understanding what your customers' pains are and what what that disconnect that they're trying that they would use your product for getting to the heart of that is really really important and however you do that and then then sharing that with your with your stakeholders to see what the insights they have on it how you do that is you know context oriented i guess yeah well i think the the the, the list you provided of possibilities is uh, is great and uh, i think uh, storytelling as a technique uh, is also something that's uh, quite in the, the upflow of the hype cycle at this moment. I see it every, everywhere uh, yeah. in my LinkedIn. So I think it's very good as a product owner to also look into the, 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 the basics of that technique and, and, and use that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So that also gives you trust as well because if you tell a story, it's funny, people kind of get it. And they, they instead of this abstract set of requirements that you articulate in some sort of bizarre PowerPoint deck, or a spreadsheet, which is the worst way of articulating anything. Um, if you tell a story about a customer and the pain that they're in and, the, and, the, and what you're doing to fix that pain and how the product is evolving to support them and, and, and tell that story and then put some value around it to set the context, then I think you're in a really good position to get insights from, from your stakeholders. If you just ask them for a list of features, they'll give you lists of features. They may have some value, they may not. No, but then you get like the, the, the solutions uh, for a problem yeah. you don't know yet, right? And that's the other point. <laughs> the, the other issue I have with product ownership in general is that often we spend a lot of time telling teams what to do. That's not very scalable. That's not very useful for those teams. We should be spending time telling them what, we, what outcome we're seeking with our customers. Yes, which goals we them. want to help the customers. Yeah, yeah how we help, yeah. you know, the all hypothesis with the customer that we need to validate. They need to work out how to, what things that they're doing to validate those hypotheses. Uh, and I think that's very important. And yeah, so, so that's the other thing that I think if a product owner can do anything, they can step back from the solution and, and focus more on the outcome. Um, that would be really, really powerful, I think. Great. I think this, uh, for, for me, this wraps up and also brings it full circle with where we started uh, because we also started out a bit with uh, driving on the, on the value, the problem of the customer. Um, so um, I feel we got some great ideas, yeah, some great stories <laughs> told. And uh, also, uh, additionally, in this uh, kind of special episode, also some insights in, uh, in uh, the... the uh, the, the road uh, scrum.org is uh, taking and uh, the vision you have for it. Okay. So uh, I enjoyed it very much. Is okay. there anything else you want to share? No, I'm good, I think. I okay. think I've shared enough. I've probably bored the heck out of your 
out of you guys at home, you're probably like, well, now I, I don't take my sleeping pill. Well, that's lucky, you know. Yeah, well, we deliver value in that way too. Yes, I mean, it's, exactly, it's fine. Yeah. Um, okay, so to round off then, um, where do you, where can you be found in the community? Do you have a list of events you're talking about? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm Twitter, kind of talking whatever. at events. So um, Scrum Day is in, in, uh, in Europe and in Germany and in uh, India. Um, talking at uh, some uh, AAD Agile Conference West in in Las Vegas in in June. I'm talking so, but uh, David J West on Twitter or mm-hmm. um, or Dave West at Scrum.org or go to Scrum.org website. Obviously, um, yeah, come and find out what we're up to. Read some blogs, participate in the community, be part of the forums. Um, uh, and uh, our industry needs to get better. We're about improving the profession of software delivery. I'm not improving it. You guys are. So if you can, if we can help you do that, then um, I'm I'm here to help. Yes, and especially product owners, please uh, interact with the community, jump in it, and uh, give those scrum masters something to really w- work on and help you with, uh, because. We are here for you, right? Yeah, hardest job in the world. Right? It is the hardest job in the world, so we need some help. We will link all your info uh, uh, in the in the notes for the for the recording, so people can find you and uh, uh, look you up or tweet at you, whatever. Uh, thank good. you very much for this oh, interview. Thank you. And um, to round off for the audience, um, the first two times uh, we just said goodbye in unison. And I want to keep that tradition until I find some others. So okay. if I count off, we should just look into the camera and say goodbye, right? Okay. Three, two, one. Goodbye. goodbye.